This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Not to necessarily knock it to other people, um, but some of those systems do tend to lead into uh, mental health stigmas, which is a thing that I wanted to really avoid. Um, And so I had to really think about how could I create a system that uses these horror tropes, but doesn't do a sanity system, doesn't do like a, oh, here's, here's, oh, the side effect is mental illness, the side effect is this, in order to avoid that stigma and some of the other negative tropes, I think that can, can come with it. I loved talking with Nick from Goblin Archives. We cover his origin as a gamer, how he fell in love with horror as a genre, and finally, what led him to make games like Liminal Horror and The Mall. Now, my best guess is I was inadvertently using my laptop's internal mic when recording this interview. I'm embarrassed with the quality of my audio. Luckily, Nick sounds great, and the conversation is too good not to release. I hope you can endure how bad my audio sounds. You see, episodes like this with better audio are possible because of the Third Floor War patrons on Patreon. I want to welcome a few of our newest supporters and floorheads. Victor Wyatt, Lucas Falk, D.O.E., Eric Salzweedle, Who's Carl, Dev Dragon, Robert Valdez, Christian, Derek Waite, and Greg Lauer. Okay, sit back, survive my bad audio, and enjoy the other half and my time with Nick. Okay, do you want to search for any traps? Go ahead and roll. successes uh yeah you don't find any traps hi this is greg and this is derek with co-designers of limelight you're currently hanging out on the third floor listening to tabletop talk hi friends greg here today we're talking to nick of goblin archives nick welcome to the third floor hey thanks for having me so you got to be subjected to the first question that you get on every freaking podcast you're a guest of, and that's your origin story. So there was a day, Nick, you knew nothing about tabletop gaming. You didn't know you could grab a sheet of paper, write some numbers down, and pretend to be somebody else, and that it was put in front of you for the first time. So can we go back there? Yeah, definitely. So um, the first time I ever got to play... I was maybe in my mid-20s. I'd known about it. I'd been reading fantasy forever, but never had a table. Never got really knew anyone who played. And I had a friend who was interested in doing it, but was like, you'd be great at GMing, Nick, as a way to get me to learn it all. And so I ended up on a work trip buying, uh, bringing with me all of the 5e stuff, the books, uh, uh, Minds of Fandelver, and... Uh, reading through it and taking copious notes and I still have my original journal of all the notes and then sort of hopping into it from there and I didn't actually get to be a player for my first like two or three years of so that's playing games I don't think I've ever talked to somebody whose first experience playing was playing as a GM yeah no it's definitely interesting and it it I, I love maybe it's why I love running games for people yeah it's 
it's just a thing that I enjoy. And as I moved away from 5e into other systems and doing that, I just, I, I enjoy it. I love sort of taking those reins and taking people on. I definitely um, always played very open table E where like people can come and join. Yeah, of course, more people, the better. I found now there is a perfect amount of people to play. To play you know? For table size. Oh, I love like for online play. I love a, a table of three players. Yeah. I think that 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 mixed together works really well. But my weekly tables that I play in in person, you know, are four or five players. And I have one that I'm a player pretty much predominantly now. And so I still get to do that. I'm definitely the push buttons, pull levers kind of player. <laughs> fail forward. I, I take that fail forward and I run I run with it. Um, I burn through a lot of characters that way. <laughs> Um, and then I have a couple other ones where we just like, you know, we'll play liminal horror. We'll play. I run a lot of mothership and, oh, nice. um, yeah, as much as I don't write any mothership and I don't know if I ever will, I run a ton of it. It's a, it's a great, have you been running the, uh, the new beta rules for a uh, one? I have. Yes. I finally ran that first one. I have, I try to really, um, if you follow people, follow me on Twitter. I try to post um, recaps of things I play in a sort of sort of funny, just like blow by blow. And I finally did with um, Meat Grinder, which was which we played uh, the Drain, and then I was like, fine, maybe I'll learn the one he rules. And um, I'd been a part of the Discord, and so I sort of knew all, all the changes they made, and it was really just streamlining. Um, and so that was really fun to. Uh, play through hell in a doom style uh um you know capitalism is the real enemy except for also the demons <laughs> <laughs> yeah it um yeah I, i'm behind every change that uh, sean made there i think that um it was very very smart and really my own i had like three complaints about uh the beta and he addressed them all um including the death spiral which i really appreciate but uh back to you now so i'm not going to let you get away with this you so you had never played tabletop role-playing games before. You grab one of the more complicated systems there is, 5e. You grab a whole stack of those books. You go on this business trip, and you run the game for the first time. You talked about a ton of prep. I mean, how were you digesting this? Did you have anything that you had watched that gave you a sense of how the game is played? I'm really curious so, how you got oriented. Oh, let's see. I, I definitely had listened to a few actual plays. I do really like to do that. Um, earlier on when I um to learn sort of like how the games would be framed um and how how GMs like elicit things from players, which is interesting because actual plays on a whole is a very different than an actual table. And I didn't realize that till later. Um and then you just start to learn your own style. Um and so I can't even remember I not initially, but I listened to a lot of like friends at the table and that, that put me onto a lot of different um, systems. Um, what was the, um, I can't even remember what the first ones were, but I listened to a couple and you know, they were comedy based, which definitely influences a little bit of how I'll run things um, leaning into the humor. Um, I ended up framing everything very visually like uh if you ever play with me I'll, I'll i'll frame things as a movie almost where's the camera what does the audience see what do we the players what do we the audience see as well um in using that language of film since that was a thing i was really comfortable with yeah it's a good shared language yeah 
Yeah, and it's something that a lot of people have a context for. Exactly. Exactly. So here's the question then, uh, Nick. If I were to somehow uncover a secret recording of that first game you ran, and then I watched it, and then I went and watched you run a game tomorrow, what hasn't changed? So what did you do that first time you ran a game that you still do today? Oh, I, I, I end up bearing the cognitive load of rules for my players. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and th- I, you know, this is actually really relevant to like what what the games I try to write are about, in the sense of, for me, the GM, right, knowing the rules, that sort of I viewed that not necessarily as my job, but I was playing with people who also hadn't played or hadn't played in years, and so I have a skill of like being able to read pretty quickly and like understand, and so what I would do is just pretty quickly be able to pull the rules up in my head or in the book to sort of remove that from being the focus of our play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, what are we doing? I'm like, oh yeah, you just roll this. And so I've had players before who've never opened a, initially with the 5e, never opened those books. I still like, I've ran liminal horror for people. They've never opened the liminal horror book. Um, Mothership too. And, and that's okay. Uh, yeah. We all have different levels of prep we can do. My just expectation when someone comes to the table is like, you're ready to play and you're ready to have fun. Um, and then I will gauge and it's maybe the teacher in me. Um, I'm a, a teacher by day is um, I will help give you whatever scaffolds you need right. to engage in the play. And it's different levels for different people. There's someone who's read the books three times. There's someone who's like probably knows what a D20 is when I ask them to pull it out. Um, and that's okay. And that's fun. And, and both and both have their benefits and all kinds of things. And so I think that if you watched videos from both, you'd see just trying to navigate that through line of how do we spend the most time in the narrative play of what's going on and less um, stressing about the rules or what they are or pulling them up. So you, you get your start running D&D, um, and I would assume that wasn't the last game of D&D you ran. But at some point, yes. uh, <laughs> at some point um, you were seduced outside of D&D. And I'd be curious, what was your first exposure to a non-D&D game, and, and what, what, what made you look into it? Um, that was probably a mix of talking about how like the rules necessarily weren't always the thing that like enthralled me in it's the play i think i was way more open to um trying other things and the fact like i spent one summer just reading like every powered by the apocalypse system i'd ever heard because i think i got exposed to that through friends at the table i think was the one um and then just being like hey let's try different stuff and with my game groups especially that first one that we ran for years um since I was the one carrying the load of, of the rules, they were open to like try different things because I was like, hey, I want to run this new system. And like they were just down to do it with me. I was like, join this adventure. Um, and we ended up doing, I think, The Sprawl, um, oh, yeah. which is a cyberpunk powered by the apocalypse game, which is extremely fun. Um, I've sort of migrated farther and farther away from Powered by the Apocalypse and Trad games too into the sort of the games I'm writing and running now. But... That one told a really fun arc, and we had these great character moments and character betrayals, and 
Uh, I love it when you can collaborate with a player to surprise the other players at the table. Sure. As someone who is like, she's like, I don't, I'm done with this character. And so we're like, okay, let's have them be a corpo betrayer. And then like, when I had her hand the sheet to me, when it all goes down, everyone was just like, <laughs> we had, it was the best. And so, um, and you can like, the thing is you could do that with any game. Yeah. It's about the table you have um, and sort of what you're, what you're doing in, in sort of the group and fostering that culture of play. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, you can, you can, you can do any type of play with any type of system, right? But the biggest mm-hmm. factors are going to be the table. Um, and then it's nice when the rules don't get in your way, right? So they yes. do, right? And and I, I, I think to me, it's always just fun to try new things. Um, my favorite, I love buying games <laughs> and maybe during when covid hit i started buying more and more um sort of zine style size games like limo, the size that like limo horror is um and there's just so many different unique like ways to engage um and so that's just been really fun and it definitely leads in like leans into you know i did 5e and then i did some power by the apocalypse played a bunch of like uh not Blades in the Dark, but Scum and Villainy and mm. um, a, a Band of Blades campaign, which is yep. really, those games are really fun. Talk about paperwork. Oh, I bet. Yeah, Band, uh, of, Band of, of Blades, especially. Like, And then we tried to convert it onto online, and it just, it was a lot. Um, but it was so much fun, right? And so just like these different experiences, trying these different worlds and settings and adventures, and then sort of not ended my journey because I'm still on my game journey for sure, but, you know, sort of settled into this mothership um, into the odd electric bastion land um, style games, which people might call OSR or NSR or whatever people want to call them. Um, But that sort of rules light, narrative focused, um, lethal, (laughs) um, lethal, like not a lot of stats, um, not a lot of like, crunchy mechanics that really get to that sort of play that I really enjoy of like, let's focus on what's at the table. What's in this dungeon room. Um, yeah. That's cool. So guys, the insider inside series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and the methods for crafting their creations. And that's what we're going to do with Nick today. So Nick, the first thing, you know, you, you have a brand, you have the Goblin Archives, right? And I'd be curious, you know, what came first? Did you say, you know, I want to start a, a brand and I want to start producing games under this brand? Or did you start making games and then Goblin Archives arose? Okay, that's definitely, I made games and then decided to have it be Goblin Archives, which happened to be my Twitter handle at the time. <laughs> um. <laughs> And it fits too. So my background, um, yeah, no, you know, Goblin Archives funny. A Goblin in Archives is a funny image to me. I did grow up with my dad being uh, an archivist, and I grew up working in <laughs> archives. Um, and so the sort of um, collecting of works, collecting of um, and archiving your process is something that has always really mattered to me. And so it's sort of I only realized that after choosing the name and like having published Liminal Horror, I was like, okay, this is a fitting name, even though I don't write any games about goblins. Um, I'd be curious, 
for you, Nick, when was that transition, right? So you're consuming games, you're running games, and at some point, you know, and, and, and we all design, right? Every GM designs, every player designs, right? We always do our tweaks and our, and our moments at the table, but that's different than putting something out there. So I'd be curious, you know, when was that first itch? Okay, so um, it, it it was a direct result of a show like this that talks to um, talks to designers. Um, Eco over at the Lost Bay. Um, that's I was listening to just those pretty quickly. They're pretty short, um, and I listened to Yohai Gal, um, who did Cairn um, specifically because that's the system that I ended up hacking for Luminal Horror. And like hearing these people's processes, I was like, wait a minute, I could do this too. Um, it, you know, and I had I had bought an Affinity publisher because I wanted to learn layout and I needed an excuse for it. And I was like, maybe I'll write a game and have an excuse to learn how to do layout. Um, and then I heard um, Yohai's talking about Karen and uh, Creative Commons licensing and iterating. And I was just like, you know, maybe I'll try that. And so my biggest part was thinking about within this design space, what could I make that would be worth it for other people? Um, not to say that I shouldn't just make another fantasy game or I shouldn't do something that's already been done, but I wanted to do something that had been, that there was a space or a need for, um, especially using, um, Cairn is sort of a descendant of Into the Odd and Nave. Um, Into the Odd, Electric Bash Landers is one of my favorite systems. Three stats, roll under, no rolls to hit. You just roll damage. Yeah. It's really about creative problem solving and of like thinking things through. It's exactly the kind of style of GMing that I through and through love. And so I, I was trying to think about, oh, maybe I was like, oh, maybe I'll do a into the odd mothership. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to write a sci-fi thing, even though I love sci-fi. And then I thought about it and looked and I was like, there's not a modern version of like into the odd, like modern 20th century, yep. 1990s. I could play today about set today. And while I didn't grow up reading a lot of horror, it, as I was become an adult, it's been a uh, genre that I've enjoyed. And so I was like, maybe I'll do, you know, uh, a call a Cthulhu into the odd or something like that. Right. Um, and so that was my thinking about it. It's like, okay, how do I um, lean into the horror? It's pretty horrifying already in the sense of like dungeon delving or the lethality is already built into the system, but I had to think about what I could do to reflect sort of that, um, that tension with like the unknown um, in a modern setting. Um, not to necessarily knock it to other people, um, but some of those systems do tend to lean into uh, mental health stigmas, which is a thing that I wanted to really avoid. Um, and so I had to really think about how could I create a system that uses these horror tropes, but doesn't do a sanity system, doesn't do like a, oh, here's, here's oh, the side effect is mental illness, the side effect is this, in turn to avoid that stigma and some of the other negative tropes I think that can can come with it. And so I ended up landing on, yeah. And so I ended up landing on this thing for Luminal Horror, which is, a, it's a stress system, right? And that's that's a big callback to my mothership playing of like, sure. uh, 
so stress is just any exposure to the weird. Um, it treats it just like damage, but it goes to your control instead of your strength. Um, and if you have a critical, if you take critical stress, which is like a failed save, you get a thing called fallout. And instead of fallout being like your mind breaks or this or that, I ended up having it really be narrative hooks. You start seeing a door that follows you and you can't ever open until you do. Or, you know, there's a crown that appears above your head and only some people can see it. And sort of trying to have these threads that lean into your character becoming more and more weird into the unknown um, that themselves could be their own. Um, so be curious, Nick, you know, you mentioned that horror was not your thing for a long time. And then as you became an adult, it, it became that. So outside of gaming, did let me phrase this the right way. Was it the gaming genres that brought you into horror, or did you find yourself enjoying horror outside of gaming, and then, as a result, you saw it in the, within the games? Um, my wife loves horror, and so watching lots of horror with my wife. Um, but also, um, you know, I loved The Evil Dead growing up, but I, you know, that is horror. But like, that was just an important. That's complex. It's it's like tangential. Um, that those movies made me want to be a filmmaker, like learning about Sam Raimi doing that. And so that was a, like, that captured my heart, but on a whole, like I wouldn't go, Oh, that horror movie I want to go see, or there's a lot of holes still in my own current um, sort of a uh, uh, library of understanding. Um, but I think it was a lot of, you know, horror short stories, uh, which I think are really, you know, I read so much fantasy and sci-fi growing up in, you know, in my thirties now. And just, it's, I started, started to change thematically of what I wanted to be grappling with and reading about. I'm not to say I don't read fantasy and sci-fi anymore, but it's not the only thing I'm reading anymore. Um, and then, you know, like the works of Jinji Ito. So co manga comics sort of giving me that toe dip. And I think also um, it ended up being a lot of, audio dramas like podcasts you know you have like um old gods of appalachia or or um the magnus archives there's definitely a few callbacks to that and it you know those are also sort of like short stories in themselves and like listening to those and like really enjoying that experience of being like hey this is a topic i do like um ended up being uh the thing that sort of now i'm writing in all the games I'm writing are are horror, even though it's not the only or predominantly genre that I consume. Right, right. But but obviously it's 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 um, had a large presence in within the your, yourself creatively as a designer, but also it sounds like as far as what you're running as well. So when we take that as a genre into tabletop role playing, what works for you? Why does that click for you so well that it, you know, leads you to make a game and make accessories for the game and <laughs> run? Yeah. Um, so I think that leaning in, like, it's a weird thing, right? And I've seen discourse before about can you have horror in games or in that? And, you know, I think that you can ratchet up tension in play and have stakes get higher and higher. Um, now, whether that's true horror or not, um, to me doesn't actually matter because what we're having is these characters engaging in scenarios of maybe like um, either they're like not going to make it out or just barely, or they have high stakes and then like things happen and how those characters change. That's interesting. And that's fun. 
Um, to me, that's more fun than just being superhero level power, just like tearing through, um, tearing through challenges is more like people closer to like reality or me, you know, and this is why I do like Mothership or like Liminal Horror or these games where you have these characters that are just like pretty capable, but still within this realm of like normal um, and having to engage with things that are way, uh, way outside of their ken <laughs> and just, um, can they make it out? How do they come out of the, on the other side, um, changed? And I think that's really interesting. And especially as we can pretty quickly bond to these characters and then care about them and want them to like have that, 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 you know, retire in that old age, but maybe that's not going to be the reality for this character. Um, in those sort of thematic moments. Um, and it makes that sort of like, when I have, we have the table and then like the monster's coming and then one of the characters is just like, I'm gonna self-sacrifice to try to like get everyone else away, right? Whether us, the players are scared or not, that's a moment of horror of like this, like this is the only way to get everyone else out. And I've had some great moments at the table with that and it's just fun. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're talking to somebody who also, that's my favorite genre as well. It's my favorite genre to play. It's my favorite genre to run. And, and, I, and I share a lot of what you said. One of the things that I've noticed is I, I find more profound moments happen within horror. And it ties to exactly what you're saying, the character arcs, the uh, players watching their characters form at the table and change at the table. And, and I love, like more than any other genre that I've run, I love that post-game coda for each of the characters. Like what happened after they lived, what was it like for them, you know, a year later or two years later? It's something I love about Delta Green. I think Delta Green does a wonderful job of handling that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's just fun to reflect back. And I don't know, there's just something that it's so easy. And the other thing of why I chose a modern game specifically is because, and maybe this comes back to like me having players that maybe either don't have a huge schema for games or fantasy or sci-fi. We all have a schema for a 7-Eleven at 3 a.m. and like something scary is happening outside. And it's really easy to like access and put people into those positions and into that framing. So then it, it lets us be in that moment instead of me having to describe something that they might not have a background to understand or, or, or I really would have to like take through. I had a player that we played fantasy. We played that fantasy campaign forever. And he's just like, sometimes it was really hard to like visualize what my dwarf is doing on the road in the caravan. Like it's just difficult. Um, but you know, that's the same person who had the player who worked at the Seven Eleven, and then the, the frog monsters came out and he's like, Oh, you got to get out of the Seven Eleven. and ends up not being a person and it's it, you know and we were just able to really lean into those moments of like okay now what do we do oh we're gonna go to the er and try to figure it out there um and so i like that i like it when people can like access the setting really quickly and easily i think one of the things that helps people experiment with games and try new games is understanding the touchstones so when we talk about liminal horror, um, what is other media people are familiar with that that you are trying to capture in, at the table with that experience? Can we give them a sense of if you like X, you would like liminal horror? Oh heck yeah! Um, I'll just pull up my appendix end on the on my <laughs> website. Um, okay, uh, the the thing which I wrote a whole I wrote a whole module just based on the thing and malls. Um, 
let's see here. You know, I had said uh, the White Vault is another one, which is uh, audio podcast, which is very thing like. But again, those are like explorations. Um, the works of Junji Ito, I would say, very at least visually. I try to I lean into that personally in the work that I write. Um, BPRD and Hellboy, if you remove the maybe the, them being cops, um, definitely if you like that kind of, and same with X-Files, right? Like that kind of like, let's engage with the horror. Is it, do we know that it's real? Maybe, well, that's an X-Files, not Hellboy. They know that the horror is real. He's, But that card sort of like engaging with it and sort of peeling back the layers. Um, one thing that I very intentionally did in the framing is, you don't play cops. Um, you're not really detectives. I think a lot of those times you could end up doing the same sort of style work if you were a podcast <laughs> or a radio. And I might, I'm going to put out a little th- a pre, um, uh, like a party setup where you are like podcasters or you are, uh, you work for a, a national radio station. Cause I think that's really interesting of like that you're doing a story and then, oh no, it, it becomes something much deeper than that. Let's see what else in terms of books, like the laundry files is a series that if, if you, if you like the sort of like delving into the weird is one that's worth, worth reading the city born great by MK Jemison. Um, you know, if you enjoy the works of, uh, sort of the Cthulhu mythos, especially if you like the sort of modern reinterpretations and sort of like taking back of those themes. Um, I think this is a game that you would really enjoy. I, I intentionally set it up where it there is no mythos attached to it. Um, and you can use any sort of monsters or monster framework or abyssal old gods framework that you want. Um, and it would work with this system. It's really... It's designed to be like, there are other things. There's the weird and it's encroaching into this world. But other than that, there's like no presupp- no, no presupposition. No, whatever. There's no, there's no intentional head ca- uh, cannon. Right, right. So you've got that flexibility when you're running the game and playing it. So, oh, yeah. Um, now, mechanically, you, you hinted at it a little bit, but I want to give people a sense of where it is on the spectrum from narrative to crunch um, and, you know, other games that, have, you know, it sounds like there's in the odd is a, is a huge influence. I'd like to give people a sense of where this game falls. Yeah. If you know how to play into the odd, um, you can play this game with all of the rules fit onto a one page rule summary. You have three stats, strength, dexterity, and control and strength and dexterity apply to actions that, you would think they would and control sort of is all those other sort of um, those other uh, sort of things. And you make saves only when there is a interesting uh, risk for failure. If there's not, your character would just do it. If it's reasonable, you just do it. Um, and then, like I had said earlier too, there's no roll to hit. You just roll your damage. So it's very lethal. <laughs> um, and your characters do slowly start to change. There's no leveling up. Um, the only way your character truly gets sort of, I guess, and I'm putting in quotations, you can't see it, but better is getting fallout and they change and stats may go up or they become weirder um, and they become less sort of that day-to-day normal and then more into that sort of like into that world. And you sort of start to grapple with how those characters engage in the world now that I have an arm that's on fire with <laughs> So um, we've we've got uh, uh, 
two supplements that you put out, the mall and the bureau. So we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about the uh, what the mall is and what the bureau is and how they tie into Liminal Horror and what they do to make it better. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway. Enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. Different people run games differently, uh, Nick. Um, uh, there's people that run it strictly based off of published materials, right? They want their modules, they want their scenarios, they want to run people through it. There's people that say, I don't need any of that, given the basic rules. I might follow some of them, I might not, but I'm going to create my own stuff and homebrew this and homebrew that. But um, then there's people that like fall in between. So to give you an example, what I tend to do is start with a published scenario and then see where the table takes it, right? So there might be, you know, four beats and five or five beats in a particular uh, you know, setting out a scenario, we may or may not get to them depending on where we are. So, you know, ha- but I think one thing that's important about published scenarios, even if you don't use them, is they, it's another way for the creator to show you how the game is played, right? To give you an idea of what the look and the feel of the game is. So let's start, let's start with the mall. Um, let's give the quick, uh, quick high level understanding of what the mall is, and then we'll talk about where it came. Okay, yeah, the mall is what if the thing were set in a mall. <laughs> um, through and through, it's actually the idea I've had pretty much about the same time I had Liminal Horror uh, in my head, and it's taken a year longer to get to the table. Um, but it it truly is like, what if we just? I, I love the movie The Thing. I think it's a perfect movie. It's a masterpiece by John Carpenter. If you haven't seen it. You need to go see it right now, tonight. Go rent it right now. This moment, do it. Buy it. Rent it. One of the top movies of all time. Um, and I wanted to make a game of what if that were set in a mall. Um, I don't know if the mall part came exactly first, but to me, a mall is such a 
unique modern setting. It truly is a modern mega dungeon. Um, and so uh, that is the thing. Um, a slightly added that happened later is I had to think about the thing works because the characters are trapped in a space. Um, the thing doesn't quite work if you're just like in a busy subway system and everyone goes. Um, and so I leaned into this concept of there's a, um, a manga called The Drifting Classroom, which is about a school that gets ripped out of reality. I think in, in it, it get, the kids get actually technically sent to the future. Regardless of that, this sort of idea that there is something that has trapped them all in and of itself first. And then the, the thing monster, the children, child of Ammon, um, start to rip through them all. And so this idea of these characters are trapped and then there's something in them all with them. Style-wise, you know, when we create scenarios, there's a wide range of, of, of structures that you see, right? You see very deliberate, uh, you know, scenario one, scenario two, scenario three. It's a linear thing. You see the branching uh, uh, ideas. Uh, Free League, you know, says we're not going to give you any story. We're just going to give you a whole bunch of premises and settings, and then you guys go play. Where does the mall fit in that spectrum? Um, so if I open up the mall. As, as the person who's running the game, what am I going to get? And then what, what, if anything, do I need to add? Okay, yeah. So um, what you get, I sort of took in the original Illuminal, Liminal Horror, there's a, there's a mystery framework that I gave people. I was like, oh, way you could write mysteries, right? Not the only way, but I wanted to give something. And there's an example one. Um, you open the mall after you see the awesome cover by Zach Hazard. Um, you open it and the very first page is a timeline. Um, it has what happened in the past all the way to 1850, um, all the way up to the summer of 1990X, which is when the, the, the mall is set. And then it has a doom clock. Um, there actually isn't a lot of mechanics in terms of me saying when you, the GM or the facilitator, move the doom clock. But this is a sequence of things that if the characters do nothing, this is what will go down. Um, and uh, part of that is technically as the facilitator, you would rewrite and change these things as things happen. But I wanted to, I like to give this sort of like, here's the kinds of things like if we just sat and watched this as a movie, this is what would happen. And then the second we introduce players is when all of it starts to get sort of wonky. Um, the mall sort of has these sort of two, well, a few threats, but there is this thing, this monster, this, I call them the child of Ammon, um, that they can consume people, look like them and replace them and slowly are doing that to everyone. Um, but it also has this sense of like, our characters are trapped in this place. Um, and to me, you know, what would happen if people get trapped? Factions would start emerging. And so there are a few distinct factions that have um, play out. I don't say how they play out against each other, but I do say they start to confront each other as like, hey, we're right, no, we're right. Um, and so uh, I give a lot of these like threads for the players, but like really it's, it's gonna be whatever um, the table does. I've ran this before where I've had the players almost not interact with any of the factions they're just like running through and like tangentially and i've had some uh only interact with one i i have a new group that is leaning a little bit heavily right now into the faction play which is exciting for me because now i get to run something totally different that on my third playthrough haven't run at all and so um it's messy. like i've ran this three or four times and it's just super different every time there are things i emphasize so there tends to be rooms players always go to they always go to the manager's office 
Um, I've packed that full of weirdness. Uh, he's a bad guy. Don't worry about it. You'll find out. Um, but uh, it's sort of like I want to just give all of these things to the to the um, the table and then sort of see where they go with it. Um, the other thing that specifically that you're talking about of like wanting to make changes uh, unique to the table is the first step for play. Um, the mall and the bureau both have custom character creations. Uh, character creation thing. Technically, you don't use the one from Liminal Horror. Still buy it, but like it's all included in the module, um, and it's specific to creating someone who works at a mall. Um, you also introduce a store, and you introduce an NPC at the mall that you have some sort of connection to, and then a bond with the other players. What it, that does pretty quickly is it makes it so our characters have a reason to be there. We have connections to it, and it gives us an NPC that is really fun to kill off right away. <laughs> um, but it gives like it gives these stakes, right? And it, it, it entwines the characters quickly and fast in a way that is really memorable. I didn't realize it was one of the more fun parts of this until after running it the first time. And when we talked about it at the end, they're like, that was so much fun. And then I had my, you know, NPC friend who was just sort of like part of the crew and then like ended up self-sacrificing or dying or this or that. Um, or like we tried to save. So Nick, there's, there's multiple phases when you create something like the mall, you know, there's the, you know, the original concept we just talked about. You said that I forgot that thing and there's tropes of the thing I want to bring over. I want to set it in the mall. You work through all that, you you know, you put together your outlines and whatnot, but then there's the first time you bring it to the table. And I'm always very interested to know what the playtest process does to the material. So if I were to look at all of your notes that you walked into your first time running the mall and then look at the mall today, what did seeing people play the mall do to the material itself? That's interesting because not everything gets play tested. This one did. Um, and I think this one did, especially I created the custom character creation. The other thing that the mall does is it has a thing called whisper cards. Um, and that was probably the thing that I had to iterate the most and why I had to play test this over like play testing the bureau, which is more straightforward of a module. So much fun. So cool. But didn't require so the whisper cards are how do i make it so us as the players are paranoid about each other being replaced because characters get replaced um fun fact like i've never no one one care one player might survive maybe the whole everyone but on a whole the likelihood of everyone surviving at the end is very small um the mall's not <laughs> you know there are ways to get out and stuff but like on a whole it's us playing through a horror film as opposed to us playing into like this huge campaign um and so we had i had to figure out how do i make it so when i'm sitting here i am worried that craig has been replaced but i don't know he has um does craig and, know craig you <laughs> no no but I, that's what i'm asking so ah, does craig know right and i had to figure that out i, I was like oh and i had these things of like do something sketchy. And like we had these iterations of, I knew it had to be cards um, leading into sort of board game play, but I didn't quite know what they needed to be. Um, they started out being um, intrusive thoughts. And then when I talked with Chrissy Kritz over at TPK Roleplay, um, she does, um, uh, she's a therapist. And I wanted to like have her do um, a read through because again, I really want to make sure I'm not leaning into mental health stigma. I didn't realize that that, that term has connotations. Um, and so I was like, oh, that doesn't work. Let's remove that. Um, and 
through iterating with my table group that I like, we play every, we're a group of teachers, we play every Monday for like years. Um, and so I was able to like debrief with them after each time. And every time we played through that, that first sequence of them all, I changed the whisper cards each time. Um, and what we ended up landing on is um, you have these cards and um, during narrative triggers or when you start doing weird sketchy, <laughs> sketchy stuff where you get sprayed with spores or you get blood on you or whatever, I hand you a card. I, the GM, do not see it. I do not know it. I don't know what's on it. Um, you are the only player that does. And there's prompts on them. And they're pretty like general prompts. So like an example of a card you could get might be... Um, search out others or reject right very open-ended it's up to you how you lean into it um but what what comes into play is us as the players or even the gm is i start to see that you have a stack going up and you start doing these things that like i'm like is this you just doing the cards or are you actually being uh weird because there are cards in these decks that say um you have been fully assimilated you've been replaced um and so then I can't tell, are you just being weird because like, and because of the card or have you actually been replaced? And I don't know. And it builds this level of like not knowing, which is maybe the most fun. fun I think it's super interesting, Nick, that the GM may not know, right? That's fascinating. I don't know if I've seen that. Um, so I do provide the tables in the back. So like if you didn't have the printout cards or I even uh, play cards.io, there's a way to use simulate the table on the computer. Um, but on a whole, I could just have it be where I, you roll and I could tell you, but the me not knowing as the facilitator is just so much fun, um, because you get to a point where there is a point in the module, small spoiler, but not really. There's a point where you put something down that says, um, if you've been replaced, reveal it, do this. If you've not been replaced to do this, um, uh, sort of this moment of reveal. And I handed that card to one of the players and he like read it out to the table. And then he just, he pauses and he says, well, that's not a problem. None of us have been replaced. Then every other player at the table was like, oh yeah. And then they just did the thing. And he's just like sitting there. He truly believed everyone was fine. Um, and then I'm sitting there as the facilitator just being like, oh my gosh, wait, what? That's <laughs> and it was this moment of like, and then there is some PVP, right? Cause they're doing a thing and, but it ended in just like the spectacular moment of true surprise. That's very, very cool. So now let's transition over to the Bureau. So where you finished them all and, and now you're putting out the Bureau. Um, first of all, where did the idea come from? So what prompted you to make the Bureau? Okay, so the mall, you know, I started writing. Um, I knew about it. I started writing. I talked to my publisher about getting it. I started, I kicked the timeline off for that. Um, I sort of, Vi Huntsman it was my editor for the mall, and I sort of set up with them when I would submit it. So I had to play test it and get it ready for them. And I ended up um, itch funding it for a Z month, for Zemo in February. Um, and about that time, Josh Domansky, sorry, about that time, Josh Domansky reached out to me and say, said, Hey, I have an idea. Um, he wrote uh, Zed in Two Knots. He co-wrote Zed in Two Knots and this upcoming Tangled, which are OSC funnels for Exalted Funeral. Um, and he's he 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 messaged me and said, "Hey, I have this idea. I wanted to do um, a module that is 
control meets gradient descent. And if y'all don't know what gradient descent is, gradient descent is maybe the best module I've ever run. <laughs> it, not maybe, it is the best module I've ever run. I've ran it six times. I am in wow. love with it. It's a mega, it's a mothership mega dungeon um, written by Luke Gearing and is perfect. <laughs> but uh, regardless of that, so he's like control meets, um, control meets uh, gradient descent. I want to co-write it. I, I would love for you to do it. I want it to be for liminal horror. Um, and I looked at my calendar. I was like, oh man, I'm pretty busy with work. And I was like, I'm still trying to finish up the mall. And I just couldn't say no. <laughs> Uh, and so we ended up sort of meeting and setting out, uh, sort of, a, a writing schedule of like what we would write together. And we both took two floors and sort of, in, we, we wrote sort of had an idea of what they would be, but we really had that freedom to write those floors ourselves. And then we just like co-edited and co-wrote things. Um, and that has been one of my most favorite experiences is writing with someone else. Um. It's so much fun. <laughs> so, so where do you, where did you first get a sense of how that mattered, right? So you've done you did them all by yourself, right? <clears throat> where did you see the benefits immediately with with the bureau? So, I think when I started seeing with the mall, with the working with an editor really closely, like Gosh. Vi gave Vi was like, oh, like. And I have this cataloged on my website too. You can look at all of the notes that, and I have the, our emails of, you know, I asked for copy editing, but then I was like, hey, there's some dev editing we need to do to like get this structured right. Are you down? And I was like, yes. Um, to me, I, I'm like, nothing I write is sacred. <laughs> I was like, okay, let's change it. If it needs to be changed, let's change it, right? Because it was written for me as the GM and I'm, very uniquely my own kind of GM and what my notes be might not be what others are, but as writing a module, I am writing for other people. Like my audience is not only writing for other people, my audience is writing for other people so they can run this at the table. Um, and so like understanding that that back and forth is just so powerful that this opportunity with the bureau to, to write and just to constantly be messaging ideas back and forth it's just fun, right? It's why we, you know, you get to talk to people about games all the time. Like it's fun to talk about games um, and like hype each other up and see what other people write. And then it makes you inspired to write more. Sometimes when you're writing on your own, if you don't have those timelines, things can just draw out. <laughs> I had the idea for the mall for forever and it only took finally setting a, a timeline to actually, actually put any words to paper. Yeah, that's a challenge. So Nick, um, you know, we, we know the thing in the mall and how that, that is connected. You measure gradient descent with the bureau. Is there other touchstones that you used or that influenced the bureau? Oh yeah. Um, so so the bureau is definitely bureaucracy is horror. Um, corporate is horror, um, and leaning into that right because you know it's it's set as office building uh, office building as dungeon where the mall was mall as dungeon, um, and so. You know, leaning into control, especially that the video game, um, you know, that was a huge inspiration. Um, the new show Severance um, came out after we were writing it, but I was watching it. I was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, oh, my gosh, this this is great. And so I actually and I'll be posting those soon is I have a bunch of visual touchstones of like pictures from like media and stuff of like what inspired and like to like lean in for um 
for levels. And so, you know, I have a bunch of clips from Severance. I have a, like uh, House of Leaves is another one. Magnetic Rose for me writing uh, level eight, which is containment where um, some artifacts are contained. This sort of like long um, manor hallways, like candlelit. Like I watched that that uh, short film, I was like, oh my gosh, I just need to write this as the whole <laughs> level. I was like, I just need to write this and have it be set in a manner in the basement of this uh, office building. Um, I find uh, with all my games, they're usually listed on the back of uh, the touchstones because to nice. me, I think that people should know where my my visual language is coming from. Yeah. Um, I think that's just like always so much fun. I, I lean so heavily uh and maybe that's an artifact of my GMing style because usually sessions would be, hey, I watched this film. I want to make an adventure that like leans into these kind of tropes or this visual or like this building that was in this movie. Yeah. yeah. So Nick, um, I, people listening right now are like, okay, where do I get Limit of Horror? Where do I get the mall? Where do I get the bureau? So where do we need to point people towards? Yeah, okay, so the Liminal Horror itself, you can get a few ways. You can get an imprint by Exalted Funeral. They're our publisher. You can get, you'll get all of them. Um, depending on when this comes out, you can get all of them from Exalted Funeral. Um, they put out, they control the, they 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 do the uh, physical prints and they, they manage all the shipping. And, you know, as much as I love to see it when people buy stuff on my itch page, um, there's no world where I'm going to be packaged things up to mail out. Um, and so they handle all that. What? Exalted does good work. They do good work. I think that, you know, if someone's starting to like want to explore what kind of games there are outside of maybe the more traditional big ones, um, take the time to peruse Exalted Funeral. You really can't yeah. go wrong. Um, and that's a way, and you can think about if we're directly supporting creators, like, these are usually small teams, two, one, two, three people. Um, and so you're like directly contributing to the work that they're doing. Um, so Exalted Funeral carries the physical copies for uh, Liminal Horror, The Mall, and The Bureau. Um, I also have Liminal Horror can be found on Itch, and you'll be able to find the other two also on my Itch page. Um, I'll probably also have them up on DriveThruRPG, but I just put things up there and I, <laughs> I don't ever manage it. Um, for Liminal Horror, though, there is a website that has the entire core rules for free um, on a searchable website. Um, I did that because I wanted people to be able to pull it up on their phone while they're playing so not everyone needs a copy. Or sometimes that's just the easiest or having it up. And so I truly believe um, being able to access it is more important to me than buying it. <laughs> because I want people to play and you know there's times where I've had that too where like I can't afford a game that I want but I want to read it or want to play it and so for me as a creator I want to give that opportunity I don't I want to remove as many barriers as possible um where uh so you can get it on and that's oh, so all interlinked and they'll probably be linked here but yeah there, so anybody can scroll down right now we're gonna have links to all of them both the itch links as well as the exalted funeral links outside of uh these materials though if i want more goblin archives where do i go i would either uh, my twitter i'm pretty active on that maybe more active than my wife would want me to be <laughs> uh, but also i started up recently a blog and newsletter um and the blog is pretty easy to remember it's goblinarchives.blot.im 
Um, and that is where I'm publishing like some like more putting out uh, in process things like little nuggets. Um, I've been doing these series of appendices, which are optional rules or supplements that could be used with uh, could be used with um, liminal horror. Like I have like one that's like in introduces item tags, one that is a procedure for time. Um, I'll probably do one soon that is that introduces flashback mechanics if people want to put that in as just like a modular way to like add and change because what I found when I wrote the mall and wrote the bureau is I do enjoy introducing new rules even though this is a rules light system modular rules that could be used at the table or removed in place still works right right um right. so you can sort of mix and match your own sort of a little horror as you want it to be because there's all these different optional like systems and things that people can do and they're just fun to write and it makes it still really fun for me to support um i i took to heart sean mccoy who wrote mothership has this thing talking about um supporting your work through building community and putting things out for it and that really resonated with me um and so to me i, I just keep writing things for a little horror i probably just will keep doing it even though i love other topics too adding these optional rules is a fun way to explore mechanics for me playing putting out modules i'm going to try to do this series of pamphlet pam i put in quotes pamphlet adventures um about an, uh, a coastal town in oregon that falls to doom and it's just different like little adventures you could play that I wanted something that if you did them all together, you could create your own cork board, <laughs> like red, right, right, your your mystery board. Um, and so just continually supporting that and people who want to play uh, the license. I put out a third party publishing license, which is really just like, hey, as long as I can, I can curse, right? <laughs> as long as you're not an asshole, like, like you can use these things. You can sell stuff for liminal horror. You can put it out like it doesn't need to be vetted. I have a compatible with them, the horror thing, and you can just look up the license. It, it follows the Morkborg um, and a couple other great third-party licenses, which are really just invitations to people to make stuff. I love seeing people make stuff. Um, Evelyn is doing this, the Potato King, which is a, a adventure for Limna Horror that funded for Z Month. That's also just super cool. Like I want to see what people do, and I want to support them. If they reach, if you reach out to me and you're like, "Hey, I'm making something," like more likely than not, I'll give you feedback on it. I'll champion it on my Twitter. Like, you know, I want to see people play these games, and it is it's a good uh, model. It's a good model. It's yeah. A model. Right. I mean, let's be honest. Speaking of Sean McCoy and Mothership, um, his ability to build that community and build that stable of creators, people who were inspired by the beta. That's a big reason why everybody was like, holy crap, look how big Mothership's you know, Kickstarter was. And, and, and that was, you know, that was a big part of it. Um, so, Nick, I really appreciate it. There's a lot of things that, uh, that are a lot more fun than being on a podcast. But you, you took an hour and you spent it with me and I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, if you speak Japanese, there's also Japanese translation too, actually. Um, there is. A, that was one of my big things. And I know that's a weird like segue at the end, but um, uh, I read an article about how Call of Cthulhu, there, there's an interesting trans transition for in Japan specifically where D&D wasn't the foundational game text. It was actually Call of Cthulhu. Um, and I ended up sort of my first ever money I earned from Liminal Horror when I got my payout from Exalted Funeral, I used to get it translated and published there. Um, so 
you know, trying to build these, you know, communities around people who want to play these kind of games. Um, uh, Little Horror 2, as I wrote it as being very, you could really convert it. I don't have conversion documents to other systems, but you don't really need them. <laughs> um, you truly, you could play Delta Grid. You could play any of those like adventures. You could play it with this with minimal prep. Um, in terms of like, cause the rules are so out, out of your way. Um, and yeah, it's just about, you know, we're all about playing in the table and the end. That's the thing that matters most to me. And I know to you, it sounds like to you, Craig, you too, Craig, cause like play is why we do it. Exactly. And it's, it's easy to lose sight of that. Um, all right, guys, that's great. And you just scroll down. Um, you got the links, everything here in the show notes and, uh, holy cow, you listen to this whole thing. But now I also appreciate you listening. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to Tabletop Talk and share it with your friends. Check out our content on YouTube and Twitch. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care, Floorheads. Uh, oh, hey. Are you still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to Patreon.com? And support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.